Hello, and welcome to episode 24 of Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast. I am your host, Trey Whetstone, coming from Columbus, Ohio, and today I am going to finish out the proper kaiju history episodes. Now, there will be a special bonus one. I don't know. I think it's going to come out after this one. I think it will be part of the October episodes that I'm putting out. But there will be another one that I'm doing with Nathan Bartleball, which is kind of a special episode where we're talking about our favorite kaiju and reviewing a very weird movie called Polgasari, which had some very weird circumstances surrounding it. But in this one, I'm going to be doing a little bit of cleanup. I'm going to be talking about the life and times of Ishiro Honda, and afterward discussing a lot of his kaiju movies that he had done that aren't Godzilla-related. And then I'm going to be cleaning up a maybe one or two other non-Honda kaiju films. So, I do want to say a couple of things right off the bat. First of all, the kaiju voting is over by this point. I think the finals are going on today when I'm recording this episode. But I want to thank everybody for getting involved with that. That's been a lot of fun, and it's kind of my little nerdy passion project that I wanted to do (laughs) throughout these episodes. So I appreciate all the involvement and interaction in there. And, you know, if you want to go over on the Facebook page or hit the podcast up on Twitter and let me know your favorite kaiju and personally, even if they didn't win the matchup, just, yeah, just I'm always up to chat about kaiju. So let me know what your favorites are. Secondly, I am running right now a campaign to get some audience involvement in my October episodes. Unfortunately, with my limited release schedule, I can't sit down and talk to everyone that I would like to talk to about Giallos, but I love Giallos, and I want to get people's voices heard. So feel free to send in a recording of yourself talking about anything you want at all with Giallos, and you can send that to screamingthroughtheages at yahoo.com, you know, whether that's talking about your favorite Giallos or what are some of your fondest Giallo memories, how you got into them. If you're new to the genre, just watch a random one and let me know about it. (laughs) I'd love that as well. You can also call in, if you don't want to record yourself and send that in, you can call in to a Google voicemail, and that number is 740-297-6556. And who knows, maybe your involvement in that and sending me a recording could get you entered in one of the two contests that I'm going to put on in October for the Giallo episodes. But the main point is I just want to hear what everyone thinks and get that included in this love letter to Giallos that I'm going to be creating. All right, housekeeping's out of the way. Let's get started. So I'm going to be going through Ishiro Honda first and going through his biography or some facts about his life. There's not much, unfortunately, when we get to the actual filmmaking outside of like what we know for the films. So this is mainly going to be a lot about his early life and his start in the industry and all of that. Either way, I find it a fascinating look at one of the most prominent kaiju filmmakers out there, if not the prominent kaiju filmmaker. Now, he did not create Godzilla, but he was in on all this stuff and was always had an open mind and always into science fiction and kaiju and had worked on a lot of great things throughout his career. So I think it's important to shine a little light on Ishiro Honda. Honda was born on May 7th, 1911, 
in Asahai Yamagata Prefecture to Hakan and Mio Honda. He was born in the year of the boar and was the youngest of four sons, and as such his name was derived from a combination of the Japanese words for boar and fourth son. His grandfather and father were both Buddhist monks, but while his older brothers were busy learning scripture, Ishiro was busy studying science. His brother Takamoto became a military doctor and sent him magazines to read while encouraging him to learn as much as he can. Honda was always into science and sci-fi and all that kind of stuff, even though maybe his grades in school didn't necessarily reflect his passion for it. Now skip ahead to 1937 where Honda met Kimi Yamazaki and would propose to her two years later. Instead of a traditional wedding, the two went to City Hall and eloped. And on their way home, they paid respects at a shrine, then went home to begin life together. Honda became obsessed with film and would sneak into theaters without his parents' permission. It wasn't necessarily the films themselves pulling him in, though. When he was growing up, the silent films in Japan featured a live narrator who would comment on the movie as it went along instead of the traditional title cards that we would see in American silent films and all over the world. He found this to be fascinating, and it was the reason he kept going to see the films in the first place. Much to his brother's dismay, when it came time, Honda enrolled in the film program at Nihon University in 1931 instead of pursuing his career as a dentist, which is what his brother Takamoto wanted him to do. Now you might be thinking, that's pretty early for a film school, and you'd be right. I don't know the ins and outs of when film school started being a thing, but... The program was brand new and was highly disorganized. Oftentimes the teacher would cancel their classes. While this drove many students to drop the program, Honda used the free time from when classes were canceled to visit the theaters and take notes on the film's playing. To say he was a self-learning go-getter is an understatement, I think. Honda would meet and hang out with other film students off of campus where he hoped to have discussions about film. Unfortunately, they mostly just drank and socialized. As a student, he would eventually run into Iwao Mori, and he was a production executive at Photographic Chemical Laboratories, or PCL. Mori offered Honda, among other students in the program, entry positions at PCL. Honda accepted and worked there while he finished his degree. He eventually moved to being a scripter in the editing department and would get his first assistant directing role as the third assistant director on 1934's The Elderly Commoner's Life Study. So he's working his way up. He is doing it the old-fashioned way, working hard, and, I mean, he gets his first gig and he's a third assistant director, but he's there and he's doing it. However, his career would have to be put on hold as he was drafted into the military shortly after. In the fall of 1934, Honda received his draft notice at the age of 23. He continued working at PCL until he was finally called to duty in January of 1935. In 1936, Honda got caught up in the fallout from the actions of one of his former commanders. Yasuhide Kurihara led a coup against the government during the February 26th incident, as it would come to be known. Honda had no involvement in these actions, but was considered guilty by association, and his entire regiment was sent to Manchuoko. For context, Manchuoko was the former name of Manchuria, 
which was invaded by Japan and propped up as a puppet state afterwards until around 1945 when the war was ending. In 1939, a week before his daughter was due to be born, Honda was recalled to service. Thankfully, he had risen in rank by then and was able to visit them in the hospital before he was shipped out to China. In 1940, Honda was put in charge of a comfort station, which was basically a brothel. This really isn't a surprise given the terrible things that happened in China during the war. But I can't imagine that being my... He had a lot of... I guess what I want to say is he had a lot of unusual roles in the military, and I think we'd find that out. Now later on, Honda would even write an essay on this subject in 1966 called Reflections of an Officer in Charge of Comfort Women, and that would be published in a film magazine. The cool thing about that is he was taking this from the perspective of not only himself, but he was trying to get the perspective of the women who worked in these things too from what he saw, like... That couldn't have been easy, just being forced into a brothel, and uh, it's terrifying and it's sickening, and I'm glad he was able to shed light on it, but it happens so many times where, you know, soldiers just doing their duty, but this is a weird duty to be in charge of. When Honda returned to Japan in December of 1942, he found out that the industry he loved had changed a lot. The government took control in 1939, and were using it strictly for propaganda purposes, as I had discussed in episode 2 of these kaiju episodes. PCL had also morphed into Toho. Honda's son was born in January of 1944, but Honda was called up yet again two months later. In a stroke of luck, his unit missed the boat to the Philippines where they were supposed to be deployed, and were rerouted to China instead, where there wasn't quite as much intense fighting going on. He was promoted to sergeant and was in charge of talking to and trading with the civilians in China. So almost like keeping relations with the locals. I don't have a source for this. I don't know if it was from Honda himself or someone else. But it has been said that Honda was always respectful to the Chinese and never ordered a civilian around. This paid dividends as when he was taken prisoner by the Chinese National Revolutionary Army for about a year... He said that he was treated well and made friends with the locals who urged him to stay after the war. As he was heading for home after the war was over, civilians presented him, and these civilians consisted of monks as well, but they presented him with these rubbings of Chinese proverbs that they got from the temple walls as his going-away present. In the future, he would write these proverbs on the backs of his film scripts, which is really cool, carrying that with him his whole life. Unfortunately, that is not the only thing he would carry through his life, as the lasting effect of war would stay with him, and according to him, he would have nightmares two or three times a year for the rest of his life about what went on in the war. As I am sure was the case with many soldiers, Honda had a near-death experience while in China when a mortar shell almost hit him. He went back after the battle and grabbed it and would keep it in his study back home in Japan until the day he died. So that's a cool souvenir, the thing that almost killed me, I'm going to keep on my shelves. Alright, so Honda is out of the military, you know, he started his career like most would, out of college, but 23 drafted in the military, was treated, I mean, it was said, I think that he might have been out after his 18-month assignment, but he was, of course, part of that February 26th incident, or at least he was a soldier under the commander who led that, and, you know, he wasn't part of that himself, but he was punished for it nonetheless. It was said, you know, he would 
under normal circumstances would do his 18-month tour and he wouldn't have had to come back, but instead he was recalled several times. He's finally back in Japan, the war's over, he's not in the military anymore, he wants to get back into filmmaking, which he loves. He picked up right where he left off at Toho and was brought back as an assistant director. He would go into work on Kunio Watanabe's Declaration of Love and Motoyoshi Oda's Eleven Girl Students in 1946, and would do three other films in 1947, or would work on three other films. A shakeup happened at Toho when issues with unions caused many employees to leave and found Shintoho. Watanabe was one of these and wanted Honda to join up with Shintoho. Even though he was promised to get into a director's role quickly if he left, he decided to stay at Toho. He was mainly just a second unit director and would work on a number of films over the next few years, but nothing substantial. However, he would soon get his chance to prove that he was ready. Toho liked to use their educational documentaries to gauge whether a director was ready to direct a feature film or not. Honda was put in charge of the film Iseshima, which was used to promote the national park. And I think these films a lot of times were paid for by whoever was creating them this time. I don't know if it would be the government or the parks or whatever, but they would pay for this to be made to advertise it. This film was notable for having the first underwater scene filmed in a Japanese movie. Film would release in 1949 and was a success for Toho. Soon after, he would work with his friend Akira Kurosawa on Stray Dogs. Kurosawa loved Honda's work on the film and more or less chalked up the success of the film's post-war atmosphere to Honda's work on it. He would direct another educational film in Story of a Co-op, which would release in 1950. Toho was so impressed with this that they agreed to give him a shot at a feature film. They approached him to create and direct this war film titled Kamikaze Special Attack Troop, but Toho rejected the film, saying it was too realistic and dark. Honda was directly criticizing World War II leaders in it, and was on record as saying the studio thought it was too soon after the war to make this serious and dire of a movie. Honda would end up directing his first feature in 1951, it was called The Blue Pearl and would utilize the same underwater filming that he used in his previous documentary short. He initially didn't want to direct war movies at all, but would end up directing Eagle of the Pacific. It said Honda had the same opinion of the main focus on this film. I think it was of a soldier, a particular soldier. He had the same opinion of them as he did of the war, which was not very highly. But this film was notable because while working on it, he was paired with Eji Tsuburaya for the first time. At age 43, he would finally direct his breakout hit, Gojira, which would set him down a path of master kaiju director we all came to know him for. So it's never too late. You know, at 43, he's directing what would become his breakout hit, and he didn't really, after the war and everything, get started until his 40s or late 30s. So He retired from film in 1975 after completing Terror of Mechagodzilla. But his old friend Akira Kurosawa convinced him to come back and work with him. He would work in various roles on Kurosawa's last five movies in the 80s and 90s, and there were some really good ones in there. In late 1992, Honda felt sick and weird a couple of different occasions. I think once he was at a, a wrap-up party for one of Kurosawa's films, and another when he was at a screening, film screening where he just felt sick, didn't feel right. 
he was checked out by his family doctor, but was given a clean bill of health and was told it was just a common cold. After being bedridden for about a week, he started losing his appetite. At this point, he went in and had blood work and x-rays done, and was told to seek medical attention immediately. Unfortunately, all the major hospitals were full, and he was forced to go to a 19-bed hospital where he was placed in a very small room. He was set to be moved to a bigger hospital, a bigger room at a different hospital, so his friends could visit and all that when one had opened up, but he was diagnosed with pleurisy, which causes breathing difficulties. His wife and daughter received a call after they had left the hospital one night that his health was quickly deteriorating and they rushed back where they stayed with him all night. He passed away late on February 28th of 1993 from respiratory failure. At his memorial service, it's said that Kurosawa and actor Toshiro Mifune were reunited. The two made eye contact and then proceeded to hug while crying over the loss of their mutual friend. His cremated remains were first buried at the largest municipal cemetery in Japan, but were later moved to Fuji Cemetery, which was known for its cherry blossom trees. Inscribed on his tombstone were the words, Honda was truly a virtuous, sincere, and gentle soul. He worked for the world of film with might and main, lived a full life, and very much, like his nature, quietly exited this world. And that was written by Akira Kurosawa. So that's a brief life and times of Ishiro Honda and the greatness that he was able to achieve throughout his career. He's directed many films that I absolutely adore, as well as some offbeat ones. And we're going to get into a little bit of that now. Some of his films, I'm going to, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a little rundown through his filmography and talk about the specific kaiju ones that I have seen. Some of his other films will be included in a later episode whenever I get back to doing, you know, Japanese horror type movie. There's one at least that I'm thinking of. But I want to start, that's how I want to start right now is kind of run down his list of films and talk about the ones I've watched here and get into their background a little bit. Okay, now I'm obviously going to be skipping around a lot because he has a very large filmography. But I'm going to be, like I said, talking about some of the notable ones, even if I'm not talking about kaiju films in particular. So after Godzilla and Rodan, of course, he worked on a film and directed a film called The Mysterians. Now, Mysterians is notable because there's... It is a kaiju movie per se, but it's mainly like an Invaders from Space movie. So let's set up a little bit about this movie. After Godzilla was a hit, the other Japanese studios tried their hand at making sci-fi films, specifically those about alien invaders. Tomoyuki Tanaka wanted to try his hand at it and brought in aeronautical engineer and test pilot turned sci-fi writer Jojiro Okami to help. Well, I say brought in, but that's not necessarily the right word. Okami had written a sci-fi story proposal that would serve as the basis for the Mysterians in 1957, is when he wrote that. Tanaka liked the story and sent it over to Godzilla writer Shigeru Kiyama, who introduced the elements of the aliens wanting to mate with Earthwomen so their race didn't die out. Tanaka, of course, wanted a monster added, so one was added. At first, it was an organic creature that was very similar to what Baragon would end up being. Who's Baragon? Stay tuned to find out. It's described as a reptile that would burrow underground. Honda changed this creature to a burrowing robot when he came on board, 
because he wanted the Mysterians to demonstrate how technologically superior they were. Mogera was born. I talked a little bit about Mogera last time on the Space Godzilla episode where he made an appearance there, or on the Godzilla episode where we talked about Space Godzilla. Takeshi Kimura would handle the final writing duties and ended up turning in four script drafts. Director Ishiro Honda described the film saying it was larger in scale compared to Godzilla or Rodin and is aimed to be more of a true science fiction film. I would like to wipe away the Cold War era notion of East versus West and convey a simple, universal aspiration for peace, the coming together of all humankind as one to create a peaceful society. So that is Honda being a pacifist, which he is. He just wants the world to come together. You know, what other, what better goal can you have than that? Honda stated that he respected scientists, but feared the danger of science, that whoever controlled it could take over the entire Earth. Yeah, so he loved science, but also feared at the same time. Very, uh, very interesting there. Now, special effects guru Eji Tsuburaya worked on this one, and he would win one of his five technical achievement awards on this movie. So he received five of those awards throughout his career. This was one of them. Before his death, Honda claimed that this was his favorite film that he directed. The film was released in Japan on December 28th of 1957, so just barely made it. It was said that the budget was larger than that of Godzilla or Rodan, but the film was also a hit, taking in 193 million yen. It was the second highest grossing Toho film that year, and the 10th highest grossing overall. RKO initially picked up the rights to this one, but when they fell on hard times, they had to sell it off. It was eventually released by MGM here in the United States on May 15th of 1959, and MGM claims to have only made a profit of 58000 on this, so not exactly one of their biggest hits. That's all I have on The Mysterians, and let's set up The Mysterians a little bit and I'll talk about it. Released in 1957, it ran for 89 minutes, and the synopsis reads, In Japan, scientifically advanced invaders from the war-destroyed planet Mysteroid cause an entire village to vanish then send a giant robot out to storm the city by night, after which they request a small patch of land on Earth and the right to marry earthling women, claiming to be pacifist. Mankind must decide whether to capitulate or to resist. So The Mysterians is a weird one. It's only really a kaiju film in the fact that Mogera is in it, who is this giant robot who wreaks havoc for a short period of time in about the middle of the film, is never seen from again. But it, I really like, so a couple of things I want to talk about with the Mysterians. Basically get this plot line where one of the scientists, I think, is captured or goes over to their side and is trying to convince Earth to give over these, I think it's five women in this plot of land. And Earth is like, no way, but they're throwing everything they've got at it and they can't defeat these Mysterians because they've got all this advanced technology. They say they're pacifists, but are they really? It's just a very weird movie. I do love the design of the Mysterians, though, the, the uniforms they wear. It's very much what we would see with the Sentai stuff or Power Rangers with their helmet designs, and I love that. It's kind of, it's kind of a little boring, though. Like I said, we do get this rampaging kaiju early in the film, but the design of Mogera is so weird. It's just not something that is drawing me in. And... I would say it follows pretty closely to the standard sci-fi of the time. It 
doesn't really seem like much of a departure for Honda, but it is very formulaic and isn't a great. There's nothing that stands out about it. I think the story is strong enough, and like I said, I do enjoy the Mysterians themselves. I just don't want to spend a lot of time talking about this one since it doesn't really have a whole lot of kaiju elements. It's much more in that aliens invading sci-fi kind of thing. I mean, I think you, as far as like if you should check this one out or not, I think it is worth watching if you're into that kind of thing. If you're into those older, you know, 50s, 60s sci-fi movies, this would be right up your alley. And you will get a very cool aliens in the form of the Mysterians. But it just falls into the same old tropes and everything like that. As far as kaiju movies go, if you're looking for a kaiju movie, I'd skip this one. If you're looking for a sci-fi movie with some brief kaiju action, maybe check it out. It's not it's uh, worth your time in that respect. Okay, let's move down the timeline a little bit to 1958 and Varen the Unbelievable. In 1957, ABPT Pictures went to Toho asking them for a new kaiju film made for TV. They wanted three 30-minute segments that would fade in and out for commercials, and they wanted them to be filmed separately. Knowing this, Tanaka gave the film a small budget to leave room for profit after the sale. Ken Kuronuma was approached by Tanaka, who seemed rather desperate when he asked Kuronuma to come up with something, anything, for the new film as far as a story. They began to film the thing in July of 1958, but trouble struck when ABPT closed and left the project in limbo. Toho made the decision to switch to a theatrical film midway through its production. This might not have been the best call, but they had to salvage it somehow, They'd already begun filming it in a TV aspect ratio and couldn't start over at this point. Honda said that they had to blow up the film to a widescreen format to be able to play it in theaters. Of the troubled production, Honda said, The change was forced upon us. We were shooting things so that they looked big and powerful on the small screen. But suddenly, we had to take the same footage and try to make the same impression for the big screen. It just doesn't work that way. And on top of that, We had been shooting on the premise of making it three episodes. Now we had to somehow combine it all into one continuous story. Of course it didn't work. We had a very hard time adjusting it. The desk side planners just did not understand how the filming worked. So it seems pretty tough there that they're having to combine all this and it's easy as someone who is an accountant office type, I get the not understanding what's going on on the creative side of things or why they're doing certain things, you know, public-facingly and things like that. So absolutely get that, that they wouldn't understand what kind of trouble. Oh, it's what, I mean, you've already got the stuff, the plan filmed out for an hour and a half. Why can't you just combine that? So doesn't necessarily work that way. Subaraya ended up having to use footage from Godzilla and Godzilla Raids again due to the lower budget of the film. The film released in Japan on October 14th of 1958. When the movie was brought to the US, it was basically shredded. They only used 15 minutes of the original film and didn't credit Toho at all. They even kind of worked an American actor into the story just like they did with King of the Monsters. It was trimmed down to 70 minutes and released in the US on December 12th of 1962. Apparently, Honda was unaware that there was a U.S. version until the 1980s. Alright, so let's set this one up a little bit and talk about it. I believe this was released in Japan just as Varen, simply just Varen. 
The U.S. version was very unbelievable. So the original cut, like we said, it was cut down. The original cut was 87 minutes and was released in 1958. Synopsis reads, When a rare species of butterfly is found in a mysterious valley in Japan, a pair of entomologists go to investigate and find more. However, when they get there, they find an uncharted lake, and as they are observing it, they are caught in a landslide and killed. A reporter named Yuriko, the sister of one of the men, decides to go to the area to find out what exactly happened. She is accompanied by another entomologist named Kenji and a reporter named Horiguchi. When they get to the village where the men were last seen alive, they find out about a legend regarding a giant monster. They soon find out that it is not a legend, and the monster, named Varen, is very much alive. Soon, Varen leaves the valley, where he has lived for millions of years and is heading for Tokyo. That's a bit of a long synopsis. They kind of include the opening scene in their synopsis. But, I mean... The synopsis gets you to the end of the cool points of the movie. This movie is a little bit of a mess, and I think everyone knows that. I mean, it's not its not like it was under made under the best circumstances. It was kind of pieced together, and they had to do what they could with what they had. It's hard for me to be tough on this movie because I really do like Varen's design, and I like Varen as a kaiju, and... I really do like how the story begins. The first 30 or 40 minutes of the movie is really good. And then it just turns to the military. And I've had this complaint so many times. If we even go back to Invaders from Mars when I was talking about the remake episode or a lot of these kaiju films, at a certain point it just turns into a bunch of military people shooting at a giant monster while trying different methods to stop it and formulate new strategies. And I'm guessing that's where a lot of the stock footage comes in on this. I I don't know, it's just so, that first reveal of Varen is really cool, and the way the whole thing's set up where they're going to this uncharted village, and the people are so fearful, and they're stuck in this fog when they're going to find this boy who ran after a dog, basically, is the setup, and then they see Varen down by the lake, and wow, yeah, it's a great moment. And I really do like that part up to that point, and then like I said, the movie just turns, and it's a mess. So maybe if they were able to split this up into three sections, they could have done something better with it. I would have loved to see that. But either way, I did enjoy the beginning. It's also very cool watching Varen swallow flares that they shoot at him. And they ultimately... That plays into how they end up getting rid of the creature, and I think that's a very cool and interesting way to get rid of him. So the ending of the movie picks up a little bit, but... Other than that, the last half of this film is just incredibly boring and basic military action stuff, not not really for me. But it's a good monster, it's a good concept, there's some good things about this film. It's worth, I mean, I guess it's worth checking out. If you are deep into kaiju movies, you want something a little different. If nothing else, you know, maybe fast forward through the military parts if they're really getting you down, but... I'm going to talk about several times throughout this episode that these movies are extremely hard to find. I think Varen I had to find on archive.org, which is the case for most of these, because even if you find them on Tubi, it's usually the English version, and it's usually not very good. It's usually cut up, and the English is really bad. So you can find a lot of these on archive.org. I think with the Mysterians, I was only able to find the English version on archive.org, though, but it still wasn't too bad. 
to sum that up, Varen is worth a one-time watch if you're a big kaiju fan and haven't seen it. But other than that, nothing to write home about. Moving down the filmography here, there's something interesting. I want to see this movie called Battle in Outer Space. I think I talked about that on the Phantom Video podcast, the most recent one. That seems cool to me. There's also one called The Human Vapor, which will come up a little later. Haven't seen that one, but I think it's a a sci-fi film about aliens. Then he did Mothra, of course, and I didn't mention before, you know, Godzilla and Rodan, but did do those ones. Then you have Gorath, which is this space movie that does have a kaiju thrown in. I watched a little bit of it, but I decided not to keep it on for this episode. Maybe it'll be something I talk... It probably won't be. It's a little bit of sci-fi horror, but it's mostly sci-fi, I think. Then you have King Kong vs. Godzilla. And then there's this cult film that I understand anyway, Matango, which in English it's something about the mushroom people or something, Attack of the Mushroom People. I do want to see that, and that is a horror movie and will probably factor in when I do you know, the early days of Japanese horror. But not now. In that same year, 1963, we had a movie called Atragon. At least it was called that in the U.S., So let's dive a little deeper into that one. The film took its concept from the novel The Undersea Warship, A Fantastic Tale of Island Adventure from 1899, sorry. And I think the title was something, the title was something like Undersea Warship or something like that in Japan, but of the movie, not the, uh, the book. Initially, Monda, who is the kaiju in this, was supposed to be a giant rattlesnake but was later changed to a Chinese dragon. This change was made as Atragon was set to be Toho's big New Year movie for 1964, and 1964 was set to be the Year of the Dragon. So that was changed to, I'm guessing, pull in Chinese audiences or just be a good tie-in for that. I'm not really sure, but either way, that's why we get Manda as we know Manda today. No one knows if Manda was in the first version of the script, or if Tanaka insisted on its inclusion like he had done with other movies. The final draft of the script was completed on September 5th, 1963, and it was in this version that most of the better moments of the film were added. So this one went through a lot of changes later on. I think the elements that were added when were the sinking of the cities and all this stuff, and the Mu Empire warship, and a lot of cool stuff was added in late in the game of this one. Shinichi Sekizawa wrote the Jinguji character with Toshiro Mifune in mind, but knew he probably wouldn't accept the role. Well, no one at Toho actually ever approached Mifune about being in this role, and by the time they did and were ready to do casting, he was busy with an 18-month-long filming for Redbeard. That is Kurosawa's Redbeard. They began filming on September 5th, right after the script was done, and was set to release in December. Due to this short schedule, Tsuburaya had to cut back on a lot of the planned effects. Atragon came out in Japan on December 22nd, 1963. It was a pretty expensive film at the time, but would go on to be the 13th highest grossing of the year, making 175 million yen. It apparently became very popular on TV and at festivals and would get a re-release in 1968 ahead of Destroy All Monsters, which featured Manda in a small role. AIP picked up the film and released it theatrically in 1965 under its new name of Atragon. Nothing is solid or set in stone on this, 
but many think that the name came from combining Atomic and Dragon. We would actually see, like it said, Monda would reappear in Destroy All Monsters and also in Final Wars, and we would get the Gotango, which is the name of the sub, in Final Wars as well. Nothing is ever dead at Toho. Alright, let's set up Atragon a little bit. Released in 1963, reigned for 96 minutes. The synopsis reads, The legendary empire of the lost continent of Mu reappears to threaten the world with domination. While countries unite to resist, an isolated World War II captain has created the greatest warship ever seen, and possibly the surface world's only defense. Alright, so Atragon, it's a weird movie. It's probably not what you're expecting if you're thinking of a kaiju movie going in. The beginning of this movie is pretty muddled. I I didn't really get into it in a, until about 15 minutes in or so, or maybe even longer than that. But I think it takes a little while to get going. Once you get there, though, there's some really good stuff. You've got this undersea empire called the Mu Empire. There's a princess that's down there who has a pretty good arc, actually. Wouldn't say she really changes or anything, but I like the way her story plays out. I also like this idea of them threatening to summon Monda and the just the whole entire setup of their undersea culture and how it's all put together. It kind of reminds you of like Atlantis or something like that. It's really cool. And once it gets going and they start you know, wreaking havoc on the surface world, there's really good stuff in there. There are cities being sunk and attacked. They are, you know, destroying warships with their advanced ship of their own. There's just a lot of cool set pieces. Now, Monda isn't featured very much, and I feel bad for Monda because Monda, much like Varen, is just underused. I really like the design of Monda, and I like the way, you know, Monda looks and everything like that. I'm so glad it's a dragon and not a rattlesnake. But Monda doesn't really come in until later in the film, and it's almost a blink and you miss it kind of thing. It's like a five-minute sequence. So don't go in expecting a lot of kaiju action, but do go in expecting a very interesting sci-fi movie with this cool, decked-out war sub that this guy was just tinkering with. I do like all those elements together. There's not a ton. I mean, it's a very basic story, and that's all you really need here. But there are so many cool visuals and elements around it that I think Atragon is definitely worth seeking out. It's one of my favorite of the non-Godzilla, non-Gamera, Dai-type stuff. So, you know, the non-big-name kaiju movies. I really do like this movie. It's fun. It's not going to blow you away or anything, but it's a cool, fun, cheesy sci-fi movie. And sometimes that's all you need. I would absolutely recommend Atragon if you are a kaiju fan or just a sci-fi fan in general that wants to see this movie. I mean, if the plot sounds cool to you, then definitely check it out. All right, let's move on down the timeline. Of course, he would do Mothra vs. Godzilla and Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster in 64, but also did Dagora in 1964. And let me say, these Toho people, they were so overworked. I mean, they did so much stuff. Sekazal was working on all this stuff. Honda's working on all this stuff. Tanaka's working on all of this stuff. Subaraya, like, when do you have time to breathe? And all their crew and team members, I'm sure, are working on them as well. But, wow. Could you imagine a director today putting out three movies? Now, I know it's not the same, but, I, which, I guess, 
Ty West might have three films come out in a year, now that we're talking about that, which is very impressive that he's been toiling away on those movies, but anyway, I'm off topic here. Let's set up Degora and talk about that one. After Gorath found success, Toho was ready to create a space monster movie and brought in Jojiro Okami, who developed the stories for The Mysterians, Battle for Outer Space, and Gorath, among I'm sure others. The project couldn't get off the ground, though, and wouldn't pick back up until 1964 when Sekizawa was brought in to make sweeping changes to the story. The setting was moved to modern times instead of the future, and sequences that included an attack on a space station was changed to an attack on a TV satellite, and a lot of this was to make it more relatable to viewers. Maybe they were finding that people were feeling more out of touch with the futuristic sci-fi stuff, so they want a little bit of a change. Also cut were the invisible monsters who were supposed to be the enemy creatures in this at first, and they were dropped in favor of a squid-like creature. Toho was excited about the potential of Robert Dunham's character to appear in future movies, but he felt he was lowballed on Degora because he wasn't a big-name actor, and they had to move on with other American actors in future projects. Their plan here was, and this goes back to, you know, Toho is always thinking about interconnectivity and reusing characters and reusing everything else, Probably not in the best intentions here. This is probably not as much for the viewers as more, you know, it's for them. They don't have to recreate or characterize a new character. They don't have to bring in new monsters. They can use some old ones. That's probably more for their quick production schedule. But they were thinking of keeping Robert Dunham's character from this movie and moving on to other projects with it, namely um, Frankenstein Conquers the World. But that never came to pass. They had to move on with other people. The film released in Japan on August 11, 1964. In April of 1965, the film was shown in Japanese at the Toho Theater in Honolulu. AIP would eventually acquire the rights and sold the film to TV stations as part of one of their sci-fi films package. Alright, let's set up Degora a little bit. Not a whole lot on the synopsis here. Let's see what it says. Uh, released in 1964, ran for 83 minutes. Let's read the tagline since the synopsis is so short. SOS from Earth, it devours buildings and people. A floating amorphous life form descends from the atmosphere to consume carbon in the form of diamonds. Bravo. Well done. Oh, Degora. Where do I start with you? You've got almost a... You've got a crime element running through this film. There's a lot of crime going on in criminal activity. It revolves around diamond thieves, and you've got... The police involved in this, you've got criminals involved in this, you've got other, like a con man involved in this. You've got all of these different people kind of intertwined, and suddenly this, something that no one can see, you know, these diamonds just start disappearing all over the place. And we learn that it's this creature who's absorbing these diamonds, and that's, that's what happens. Again, this is a squid-type creature... And it just kind of floats in the air. It's really cool how it looks. It's very much like a glowing creature, but it's not my favorite. It's really cool to think about how they did it and how good the creature looks for the time, but it's just not my type of thing. That is my main problem with Degora. My other problem is it's so over the top with its goofiness. You have people just floating around in rooms and not knowing what's going on. And I don't have a whole lot to say on Degora. It's not really my cup of tea. I think the crime stuff isn't developed very well. I just didn't really like Degora a whole lot. 
that's my final stance on that one. I would put this one pretty low on your watch list as far as that goes. Is it a better movie than Varen? Most likely, yes, it's a better movie than Varen. But there's so much more cool stuff in Varen than there is in this one. While it's a more solid film for me, it just didn't land. So that's all I really want to say about that one. I wouldn't tell you to stay away. I know people that like it, but I would put it down further on your list. Now let's pivot to a film I just mentioned. What would be the next movie after 1964 would be Frankenstein Conquers the World. And that is the U.S. title again, yes. Most of these are the U.S. titles, even though I didn't necessarily watch the English versions. So this released in 65 alongside Invasion of the Astro Monster. Well, not alongside, but they both released in that year. Tanaka was dead set on making a Toho Frankenstein film. In fact, in 1961, he wanted to make a sequel to the film The Human Vapor, which I had mentioned briefly earlier, called Frankenstein vs. The Human Vapor. That would have been interesting. However, this project was cancelled before a script could be finalized. Flashing back to episode 1 of this kaiju stuff, remember that Toho purchased John Beck's script for King Kong vs. Prometheus, which was taken from Willis O'Brien's original concept. That would be changed to King Kong vs. Godzilla, though. Toho wasn't done with the concept of Frankenstein, however, and wanted to put him up against Godzilla. The basic concept of this Godzilla film was very similar to what we got in the end, but after Frankenstein's heart grew into the monster, Godzilla would be freed from an iceberg and sent into battle with Frankenstein. So the beginning more or less matches what we would see in the final film. A little bit different, though. Toho wasn't thrilled with this script and moved on to pair Godzilla with Mother instead. I think they had problems with the way things were lining up. It just didn't make sense for them to move forward with this, and I think that was probably a good idea. In 1965, Henry G. Saperstein came on board to co-produce the movie with Toho. Remember, he had worked and co-produced three films with Toho, Invasion of the Astro Monster, Frankenstein Conquers the World, and The War of the Gargantuas. Most of the story elements and characters stayed the same from the original script, but Baragon was created to face off against Frankenstein. And Baragon is awesome. Honda wanted to add more of a science-gone-wrong spin on the movie, but had to drop this when a monster battle was required for the finale. During filming, Nick Adams delivered all of his lines in English while everyone else was speaking Japanese. Saperstein requested Toho to make an alternate ending for the American release where an octopus would drag Frankenstein into the ocean. There were actually, it was said, five or six different takes on this alternate ending that were filmed, and they did have to reassemble the cast and crew to shoot it. But Saperstein didn't like it and cut it from the American version anyway, so all that worked for nothing. In a mix-up, the alternate print of the film with that ending was aired on TV in Japan, which led viewers to be very confused. The original title of the movie was Frankenstein vs. Baragon. It was changed to Frankenstein vs. the Devilfish, I think because of the inclusion of the octopus, and then again to Frankenstein Conquers the World in the U.S. This is a case when I think it's a little confusing because, one, you don't know Baragon's in it going into it if it's... Frankenstein Conquers the World, but that is a far superior title than just the this monster versus this monster. So this is one of the rare times I think the U.S. localization got it right. It released in Japan on August 8th of 1965, 
and made 93 million yen. So diminishing returns from the last movie we talked about. It was released in the U.S. almost a year later on July 8th of 1966 by AIP. So Frankenstein Conquers the World, released in 65, ran for 90 minutes. During World War II, Germans obtain the immortal heart of Frankenstein's monster and transport it to Japan to prevent it from being seized by the Allies. Kept in a Hiroshima laboratory, it is seemingly lost when the United States destroys the city with the atomic bomb. Years later, a wild boy is discovered wandering the streets of the city alone, born of the immortal heart. If that sounds a little crazy, it's because this movie is crazy. This is a different beast of a film, and I don't know if it's because you have you know, Saperstein in this as like a co-production. I don't know what it is, but there's some violent scenes that I didn't expect to see, and you wouldn't really expect to see it. It's like seeing nudity in a Godzilla film, as I've talked about before. But to give you a little bit of setup, so yeah, they bring this boy in and realize that he is somewhere along the line, you know, they talk to a German scientist who's seemingly just unfazed by all this, like, oh yes, Frankenstein, you know, you could find out if it's Frankenstein by this way. And so they they know this is Frankenstein, they have him in a cage, they're doing all these tests and everything else on him. And, you know, he'll he eventually breaks out and is getting blamed for all this stuff, even though the scientist who were with him know he's gentle and wouldn't hurt anyone. That doesn't fool the public because there is a rampage going along in the countrysides with a giant monster killing people. Really, you know, it's revealed later that, of course, that monster is not Frankenstein, it is Baragon, and we get the ensuing monster battle and all this stuff, but... This is a really cool and different movie. This is a kind of a breath of fresh air in the kaiju films. Now, I don't like... There's some things I don't like. I don't like Frankenstein's design at all. He does kind of have that weird... It feels almost tacked on in this performance, the head. The head just does not look right. But it's that famous Frankenstein headpiece that it does not look right at all in this one. He looks much more closer to like a giant Neanderthal or something than he would a Frankenstein's monster. The ending battle is pretty bad as well. But there's a lot of good stuff, you know, even though I don't like Frankenstein, I do like his arc and how he's created and how he grows and the whole path that he takes throughout this movie. I'm also a huge fan of Baragon, even if he doesn't get as much play. I mean, he gets a lot more screen time than most monsters. He gets brought back in GMK later, and he's a lot more awesome in GMK than he is in this movie, but I do like Baragon overall. I also like a lot of the characters. Our leads are good. It's it, it's good enough writing. I think I, I like the writing. I like the characters. I like how they all interact, and I like the paths they all ultimately take, and just how they go back and forth with Frankenstein. Like, Frankenstein's not this completely dumb monster like he knows what he's doing and how he interacts with them is cool it's also nice seeing some good old-fashioned world war ii nazi occult stuff and you know you've got that subplot that kicks off the whole thing and that's how this movie starts as you see this heart getting transferred over to japan from germany and that's just crazy to think about but i don't think we get it as much anymore but there's this prevailing theory of how much the nazis were into the occult and all this other stuff, and doing these weird experiments, and terrible experiments. But this is kind of a 
a decent way to start it off. It's like they're responsible for this Frankenstein heart that they're sending over to Japan, and I like that a lot. Really, Frankenstein Conquers the World is a great kaiju movie. I don't think it's great as a film. I don't think it stacks up to a lot of the Godzilla films or anything like that, but wow, do I really like this movie and how different and weird it is. If you are a kaiju fan and haven't seen this one, I think this is a a must-see for kaiju fans. Again, I'm going to call this a must-see, and my this would probably be middle of the pack for a lot of my Godzilla rankings. But it's probably the best non-Godzilla Gamera Daimajin movie that I would that I would recommend. It's probably my favorite of all of those. So there are definitely some negatives about this one, but it's a really fun ride. So after Invasion of the Astro Monster, we had the third co-production with Saperstein, and that is The War of the Gargantuas. This would serve as a direct sequel to Frankenstein Conquers the World, even though it was a lot different. Late in 1965, Mori came to Honda, and that is Iwao Mori, that we had talked about earlier in this episode. But he told Honda that his contract wouldn't be renewed with Toho. He would now have to go through Tanaka for each assigned film and get details on it, but he's not just a company man anymore. Honda's assistant, Seji Tani, recalled how Honda and Russ Tamblin didn't get along very well. Tamblin was brought in because Nick Adams, it was chosen, it was decided to go away from Nick Adams, who had been in the previous two Saperstein collaborations. And, you know, there's varying stories on this, whether Tamblin was, just couldn't remember lines to save his life, or if he did think his dialogue was bad, but you know, so that he did the opposite of whatever Honda told him and then improvised every one of his lines. Now, he said it's because his dialogue was bad, or the, that's the remembrance, but I've heard other things where maybe he couldn't remember any of his lines either. Tani was quoted as saying, Honda-san had to hold back and bear so much during that one. Russ Tamblin was such an asshole. You get a, a sense that it's not just Tani and Honda either, because it was ultimately Saperstein's decision to replace... Adams for Tamblin, even he would later admit that Tamblin was a royal pain in the ass, to quote him. So Russ Tamblin, not so great on this movie. The film had several different names during pre-production, and I mean it had a lot of different names. Those were the Frankenstein Brothers, the two Frankensteins, Frankenstein versus Frankenstein, Frankenstein's Decisive Battle, and Frankenstein's Fight. That went through a lot. I mean, most of them make sense, but I kind of am partial to Frankenstein's decisive battle, but the War of the Gargantuas isn't bad. This was another rush job, and it's pretty clear to see the links between the two films aren't very apparent. At least in the version I watched, which I believe I watched the English version on HBO Max. I can't remember. I think it was in English. But yeah, anyway... They finished filming in mid-July, and then the film released on July 31st of 1966. Again, a very much a rush job. The U.S. version released on July 29th of 1970. A little bit of a delay for that one. The U.S. version had additional scenes added that it actually increased the runtime. But it had some other changes too. Tamblin was dubbed over since he improvised his lines. 
And then they referred to the creatures as gargantuas instead of Frankensteins. So this one, released in 1966, ran for 88 minutes in the Japanese cut. And the synopsis reads, Gyra, a humanoid sea beast spawned from the discarded cells of Frankenstein's monster, attacks the shores of Tokyo. While the Japanese military prepares to take action, Gyra's gargantuan brother, Sanda, descends from the mountains to defend his kin. A battle between good and evil ensues, leaving brothers divided and a city in ruins. Yeah, War of the Gargantuas isn't very good when compared to Frankenstein Conquers the World. The sequel kind of loses a sense of all of what made the characters interesting in the first film, and it definitely suffers for it. And this isn't a spoiler because it's featured prominently anywhere you see this film. There are two of these things, and I just read that there are two of these things. You've got a good one and a bad one that have spawned from Frankenstein's cells. And at first, the good one shows up and starts helping the bad one when he's being injured. But, you know, then they ultimately can't stay together, and the scientists are trying to figure out why are they helping each other, and this and that, and they end up turning on each other, and one defends humanity, and the other one doesn't. Now, the Gargantuas themselves aren't great. They're ter- I didn't like Frankenstein. I think I like these maybe a tiny bit better than Frankenstein. I don't know. None of the three are great designs at all. Baragon is by far the best out of these four monsters. But speaking of Baragon, the absence of Baragon sorely missed. We we don't have that presence in this movie and that other mystery going on behind the scenes. I just, uh, there's no backstory to the Gargantuas or the Frankensteins, whatever you want to call them. And I just really liked that about Frankenstein's character in the first movie. On a better note, I do like how close up and intense some of the violent attacks are. A lot of the times in these kaiju movies, we're just seeing things from 10,000 feet, right? We're not seeing up close, you know, we get up close of the people and then we see that they're destroyed. And I've talked about this in some other later Godzilla films, is you kind of get close up with the carnage on this. And I think that makes it more impactful. This movie almost seems like a preamble to the popular anime, which I'm not a huge fan of, but... Attack on Titan that we would get later on. It seems like a lot of elements of this were drawn into that one. Maybe not, but I just, it gave me that vibe as I was watching it more than any other kaiju movie I'd seen. But once again, this one is just plagued by way too many military set pieces that have always been a negative for me. And honestly, I think a lot of that stems from that's what they had to do. They had to reuse military scenes or use these scenes to fill in stuff because they didn't have anything else to put there. This is a mixed film for me. I think it's okay if you're going to watch, you know, Frankenstein Conquers the World, you probably want to see the sequel. I just wouldn't rush out to see this one anyway. I'm assuming one day this one's going to be on Criterion, which makes me mad that we don't have that they don't have Frankenstein Conquers the World because this one was actually on HBO Max and was much easier to find. Like I said with Rodan, you know, Janus Films has the rights to both of these, so we'll probably see them on the Criterion. It's just a shame that they don't have some of these other Toho films yet. And maybe, maybe they'll do this giant Toho collection, and I can only hope for that. But anyway, let's move on. As we know, we'd have a lot of Godzilla-verse-type movies coming up. We'd have Ebra Horror the Deep from Honda in that same year. And then in 67, he's got King Kong Escapes and Son of Godzilla. 68, he's got Destroy All Monsters. 
69, he's got all monsters attack and a movie called Latitude Zero, which sounds sci-fi to me. But we turn a corner in 1970 when we get Space Amoeba. (laughs) Space Amoeba is an absurd title for a film. It's an absurd monster, but let's talk about this one. The first screenplay was written in 1966 as a co-production with Saperstein's UPA and was referred to as Great Monster Assault. This version was way more ambitious with alien monsters invading, among other large set pieces. Now we do get a little bit of that in this movie, but uh, we don't get the destruction that was supposed to be in that original and we don't get we don't get very creative alien designs, quite frankly. It would sit on a shelf until 1969 when Toho added it to their schedule. The original script was overhauled and the globe-trotting element was eliminated. The film instead would be set on a single island. At this point, Subaraya was in poor health, but was determined to help with the movie. His protege, Sadamasa Arakawa, was set to do most of the work with Subaraya credited as director, as we've seen in some of these other movies, the Godzilla films, namely, that they were working on together. Superia would pass away two days into filming on January 25th, 1970, and wouldn't receive a credit at all. Arakawa, along with other employees, lobbied for the film to be dedicated to Superia, but Toho rejected it. This angered Arakawa, and he held a grudge against Toho even years later. It seemed like when he was doing interviews, he was still incredibly upset and mad about this fact, and I don't blame him at all. That's a pretty crappy... Crappy move by Toho there. Assistant director Tani, who was, you know, the assistant director on War of the Gargantuas as well, claims that they received constant direction to minimize the budget and had to rush through the filming because of it. You know that's a great setup for a film. Honda wanted to film it in Guam, but again, they had to settle for that much cheaper location of just a smaller island that was closer to home. Space Amoeba was the last sci-fi film made under Toho before they dismantled their studio system. So basically what we saw happen in the golden age of Hollywood, and when I talked a little bit on the fall of the studio system, the Val Luton episode, same thing happened in Toho. Due to their declining revenues, they released most of their actors and directors from their contracts, and axed Subaraya's special effects department as well. They created a new department that would specialize in Toho's tokusatsu fair named Toho Aizo. This movie would end up being Honda's third to last directorial effort. He would do Mirror Man two years after this, and then three years later would do The Terror of Mechagodzilla before retiring from directing. And those are both Toho, by the way. So he was a Toho man his entire life. Space Amoeba was released on August 1st, 1970 in Japan, and then AIP would release it in 1971 in the U.S. as Yogg, Monster from Space. Space Amoeba, released in 1970, ran for 84 minutes. Synopsis reads, when a space probe crash lands on a far-flung Pacific atoll, the craft's alien stowaways decide to take over their new world, one creature at a time. Soon, the parasitic life forms latch onto three indigenous creatures, a squid, a crab, and a snapping turtle and transform them into colossal mutant monsters. Let's start off. I only found the English version of this, and I'm sure this was done in Hong Kong. The main woman in this movie has the weirdest 
Hong Kong English accent. It's terrible. It's so jarring and distracting throughout the movie. Drove me insane. So there's three creatures in this that they set out. And I think the first half hour, 40 minutes of this movie is pretty good. Uh, Same we saw with other movies. Maybe they just had to rush and ran out of time. But I really like the giant squid that goes on a rampage. And, man, I really love that. That's the first thing that we get in Space Amoeba is this giant squid being controlled that's going through and just knocking over stuff and destroying villages and all this other stuff. I really like that. And then we get reused footage of Ebera from Ebera Horror of the Deep, I'm pretty sure. That's no crab. That's n- that is a crustacean, but that's no crab. That is Ebera for sure. This is, you know, Toho's in dire straits almost at this point, so they're reusing footage, and yeah, that's that's absolutely what's going on there. And then we get another creature later on that's very, very underwhelming. You know, the, the squid is the main attraction, and then after that we get creatures that are less and less interesting. It takes over humans, and you know, I like the movie until the squid disappears. I don't know with Space Amoeba. I don't have a whole lot I want to say on Space Amoeba because it falls off a cliff after that opening. And it's harder to follow. You don't care about any of these characters. You've got that weird accent distracting you throughout the whole thing. Space Amoeba is a fun little weird film. It's not a good film. If you want to watch it just for the giant squid rampage, I'd recommend it for that. But other than that, anything else? Ah, Space Amoeba is what it is. I'm okay with Space Amoeba. It's all right, but it's nothing significant or nothing to write home about, really. It's a fun movie if you want to watch something, and I think it is better than some of the other ones, or I liked it more than some of the other ones we talked about here, but yeah. So that pretty much wraps it up for Honda's directing career, and that's the Honda segment of this episode. I do want to talk about quickly a couple more. Very briefly, I want to talk about this before I get into the main event, is Digoro versus Goliath. And this is a Toho film I checked out because, you know, I wanted to... I saw it on the list. It's not a Honda film, and it's not good at all. It's intended solely for children. It's 100% comical. Do not watch this movie. That's all I want to say about Daigoro vs. Goliath. I did not like this movie at all. But I want to move on now. There's two other things left before we can wrap up this episode and wrap up the kaiju coverage. Is I do want to talk about one more Toho film that came out in the 90s. And I want to, or I'm going to have to do my um, watch list roulette on another new film. So we will be talking about first Orochi, the Eight-Headed Dragon, and then I will move into my mini-review of Day Shift from 2022. So I stumbled upon Orochi and the Eight-Headed Dragon and wasn't really sure what this was, but it looked really cool. It looked to be right up my alley. And this was the first, actually, of all the kaiju films that I've checked out, so I've been holding this one for a while just to get into this episode. Now, what is the movie? Well, let me go ahead and set it up for you a little bit. Unfortunately, there's no behind-the-scenes of this. There's also no Blu-ray or DVD in print of this. You're going to be paying a lot of money if you want to own Orochi, so I am begging anyone out there listening to this, if you have any ties or anything at all, with any video label, please go search out Orochi and get that one out on Blu-ray ASAP. This film was directed by Takao Akwara, who was the director of Godzilla vs. Destoroya, Godzilla 2000, Godzilla 
versus Mothra, uh, Battle for the Earth, Godzilla versus Mega Mechagodzilla 2, and he did a lot of stuff. I can't remember if that's how I stumbled upon this or not, but either way, so Akawara has done a ton of stuff. Now this came out in 1994, so it was after the whole kaiju trend had become popular, and it's coming back in when these Heisei-era Godzilla films are coming. Runs for 105 minutes, a very action-packed 105 minutes. Synopsis reads, After killing his brother, Prince Yamato is banished from his father's kingdom until he can bring his dangerous powers under control. On his journey, he meets and joins with a magical princess, Odo, and together they go to fight against an evil god that has been ravaging the earth in the form of the enormous Hydra. Will Yamato ever return home to reclaim his rightful place on the throne? Man, is this a gem. And I'm talking about gem. If you go on to IMDb or on Letterboxd, I mean, we're talking less than 300 people on both logging this movie. So you know it's hidden, at least in the United States. So what really happens is these twins are born at the beginning, and this tells the Japanese mythology background type stuff that leads to the birth of Shinto as a god and all this other stuff. But it begins with two princes being born, they're twins, but the emperor thinks that one of them is, I don't know if he thinks he's cursed, but he has a premonition that the boy is going to bring like downfall to the kingdom. So he orders his shaman to kill him, and this, I don't know if it's a god, it's kind of a god-type mythological creature, saves the boy from being killed. Um, you know, it's something called the White Bird of the Heavens, Amano Shiratori. And then the emperor's, I think, let's see what I have here, the emperor's sister is seeing this as like a divine intervention, and she's going to raise this child. When he's grown into a man, he gets this pardon and goes home, but his mom gets sick and dies, and it's blamed on the son who had just returned home. The brother sees it, freaks out, and he ends up killing his brother, and this really makes his father mad, so he sends him on this task to deal with these barbarians. So that's how this whole journey is set into motion. Now, there are a few different kaiju in this. There is... Kumasagami, who is probably my favorite from the movie. I really like Kumasagami. And then you have this water god who I think is uh, Kaishin Muba, I believe is the name that I have here. It's great. These monster runs are great. And then you have Orochi, the eight-headed dragon, obviously at the end of this. But I mean, really what you're getting is this adventure movie with kaiju in it and some mecha-type stuff in it. And it's just off the wall and over the top. It's 100% you know, campy and schlocky, but it's awesome, and I absolutely love it. It's exactly what I needed when I watched this thing. It's just so much fun, and yeah, the effects aren't great, but I mean, we're not working with a Godzilla-style budget here, but I really think they do the best with what they have, and I think the kaiju look pretty good. It doesn't really stop it from being this great martial arts adventure movie, we get some kaiju thrown in, so that's a bonus. And the final battle is so amazing, and I compare it to the Super Sentai or Power Ranger type stuff. It's an amazing final battle that's just 
completely over the top, completely unnecessary, but it's awesome. I also found myself getting really connected with the characters. You know, this is a journey story. It's not all about just kaiju and action and fighting. I think they do a really good job with fleshing out the characters into being people that we care about. And I think the story is great too. And yeah, the story might be pulled from mythology, might already have one foot in the door, but that doesn't keep it from being great nonetheless. I I just really like this movie. And I think if you are liking the sound of this thing, if you like tokusatsu films and kaiju films and all this other stuff from Japan, please check this one out. I urge you, it is on archive.org in its entirety. And it's amazing. It's not going to be anything you take seriously. It's campy. It's over the top. But to give you an idea, I come in on this thing around a nine. That should tell you something (laughs) of how much I like this film. I love this thing. And I know I had recommended it to Will, and I know Will really loved it as well. We need a Blu-ray for this. We need a special edition for this. Somebody dig it up and find some special features. And please get this thing back out here. That's all I wanted to say on Orochi. Go check it out and tell someone, if you like it, that we need a release of it. One more thing before we go. This is the Watchlist Roulette. I stuck to the 2022 theme because I have so many I need to watch. And this is the last time we'll be doing one in this fashion. I think I detailed how I'm going to change this up. I don't know if there'll be one in October or if I'm going to wait until November when I'm back to regular episodes to do this. But, for this one, the last request that I had was from Pearl Morgan over from Land of the Creeps. And Pearl had suggested the number six. So I went down my list, and what popped up was Day Shift, and that is the Netflix original movie with Jamie Foxx and Snoop Dogg and Dave Franco. My first thought was, uh, I didn't really know if I was going to watch this at all, but I gave it a fair shot, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about it in this mini-review. So this is the directorial debut of J.J. Perry. It is a 2022 film, runs for 113 minutes. The synopsis reads, An L.A. vampire hunter has a week to come up with the cash to pay for his kid's tuition and braces. Trying to make a living these days just might kill him. Yeah, I really liked this thing. I'm going to go ahead and let the cat out of the bag. I didn't think I was going to, and... So let's break down what's happening. You got Jamie Foxx. He's a vampire hunter, but he doesn't. no one knows he's a vampire hunter. It's all kind of kept secret. Vampires are very secretive in this world. There's even this union that's very much like a bureaucracy where you can't let people see you kill a vampire. You can't destroy too much stuff. You can't break these codes or you're out of the union. Well, that's happened to Jamie Foxx several times, so he needs to get back into this union so he can keep his wife and daughter from moving to Florida all the way across the country. Well, this is a horror comedy, an action horror comedy, I would say, and a lot of the times the comedy doesn't stick. I did like some of the comedy and found some of the humor good. I think Jamie Foxx is excellent in this. Snoop Dogg is, you know, he's okay. He's all right. He plays a pretty good, you know hero-type character. He's one of the biggest and baddest of the vampire hunters. And he's been friends with Jamie Foxx's character, Bud, for a long time, and they've been through a lot of stuff together. Well, when he gets him back into the Union, Jamie Foxx has to 
ride with this kind of desk person in this union, you know, very much like a bureaucrat or something like that. And he's told by his boss if he wants a promotion, he has to keep an eye on Jamie Foxx's character and write him up for anything that he does wrong against the the code so they can kick him out of the union once and for all. Well, Jamie Foxx kind of scares him at first, and then the two bond a little bit and become friends pretty quickly. It's a little bit of a leap of logic, but either way, it's kind of that odd couple buddy cop type thing. Now, the vampires, I think, are done pretty well. Something I really like about this is something I really liked about Night Teeth, and that is setting up its own mythology and vampire lore and all that. It's not just sticking around with traditional, we don't really need a story, you know how vampires are this and that, and there's definitely some twist with these vampires, and it's not entirely new, but I think it's new enough where they've created this fascinating world. And that's one of the things I like the most about Night Teeth, and the same as goes for this one. Now the action gets a little over the top, sure, and the movie can get a little goofy a lot of the times, but... I really did enjoy myself. I think it's a fun type movie. And again, this is going to, if you didn't like Night Teeth from last year, if you don't like Happy Death Day, you're probably not going to like this movie. I think, you know, the best part about this movie is Jamie Foxx and the awesome soundtrack that, you know, includes Wu-Tang Clan and, oh, I'm blanking right now, but, but there are a lot of good songs on this thing. And... I think those two things in the world building, the action and some of the cheesy dialogue and all that, it's not great, but it holds up well enough. I really liked the first two thirds of this movie. It falls apart a little bit at the end, and I started to lose a little bit of interest, but I still thought it was pretty good. At the end of the day, I think I like this a little less than Night Teeth, so gauge that. If you like that type of a movie and you're okay with liking a fun, nonsensical not really that serious at all horror movie, then give this one a try for sure, and I think you'll like it. It's not going to set the world on fire. It's not going to make, you know, any list I have this year of top 25 films, or horror films, but it was a good time, and it was a good way to spend a morning watching this movie. Thank you very much for that, Pearl. You can find Pearl sometimes over on Land of the Creeps which is an excellent podcast, by the way. And as far as this segment going forward, from now on, I will be asking someone from the audience to pick a year for me to go through and clear my watch list on that year, or just about clear it, something like that. I'm going to try to do as many of these little mini-reviews as I can. Sometimes I'm not going to do it for every single movie I watch, but we'll see how that goes. I really like having the something to work towards with clearing a year. So the first one comes in from Greg Bazelli, actually, from Monsters and the Mosh Pit. And Greg suggested the year 1984, because he loves Nightmare on Elm Street. So that's going to be my first year. Whenever I get back to this and do my first one, it's going to be over 1984. Well, that's about it. It's been a blast doing these kaiju episodes, and I hope people have enjoyed them. I know it's not everyone's thing, and I know Hitchcock certainly isn't everyone's thing for horror. And I know coming up with Giallo's, not everyone's thing for horror. But I promise you I will have much more of a straightforward horror-centric 
set of shows coming out in November and December and for a little bit there. We're going to get back into straight-ahead horror, which you could argue giallos, but that's kind of an acquired taste. Now, depending on when I'm releasing this, I don't know if the episode, I think the episode with Nathan is going to come out after this. What we did is we put together each of our list of, it ended up being like a top 13, so top 10 and a few honorable mentions each for our favorite kaiju, and to avoid getting the same kaiju over and over again, we combined the list into a top 15 and based it on, you know, where each of us ranked the kaiju. So we're going to give our top 15 combined list of our favorite kaiju, and then we're going to talk about a very weird movie called Paul Gasari, which has an incredibly, I mean, it's a, something where the story is much better than the film itself, but it's going to be fun to dive into. Again, I think that's going to come out after this episode. I'm not sure with the logistics, but we'll see. And then we'll be wrapped up with Kaiju. As of right now, it looks like we have crowned King Ghidorah as the audience's favorite non-Godzilla Kaiju. So congratulations to Mr. Ghidorah, or His Highness. And he has been crowned. It's been a lot of fun doing those over there, and I really appreciate everyone who participated. Okay, well, moving on, I have some huge things planned in October, and I don't really want to get into specifics yet. You know I'm covering Giallo's, so that'll be something to check out, and then I'm going to have at least a couple of extra bonus episodes to go along with it in the spirit of the season, and I hope you all like those as well. You can follow the podcast over at Twitter on at Screaming Ages. You can go over to Facebook to find Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast, and join that public group. You can send an email to ScreamingThroughTheAges at Yahoo.com. If you want to leave a voicemail for the Giallo episode or for anything else, you can call in and I will play it on the show at 740-297-6556. And once again, I want to plug the Phantom Video podcast over on the Phantom Galaxy podcast feed. With all that being said, keep your eyes on your favorite podcast feed for your next bi-weekly horror movie history lesson.